This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Beginning in the mid-2000s, audio recordings pushed out through Apple's iTunes service began and came to be known by the portmanteau of podcast, blending the popular iPod device on which they were played with the broadcasts being heard by listeners. And many of us that record and listen to podcasts mark the history of the medium by a single event, the cultural phenomenon that was serial. In 2014, when the landmark first season was released that gripped the nation, as host Sarah Koenig investigated in near real time on air, a murder case for which a man had been serving time for killing his high school girlfriend. According to Edison Research, the number of monthly podcast listeners in America practically doubled in the five years after Serial's 2014 release, from around 39 million Americans to an estimated 90 million. In the five years preceding Serial, that same metric grew by only 35%. In the years that followed, podcasting became a secondary outlet for big media companies with shows from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, as well as another avenue to provide content for radio stalwarts like NPR. Both Kurt and I have come to be podcast nerds and listened to great shows long before we started Insecurities. Today, we hope to share some of those stories with you. And as Robert Garish, entrepreneur and author of Flying Solo, How to Go It Alone in Business says, You just need one person to listen, get your message and pass it on to someone else. And you've doubled your audience. We hope to share that message with you all on behalf of some of our favorite podcasts today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. And instead of diving into some of our favorite nuanced securities and accounting matters today, we're sharing some of the things we like to do outside of the office to stay current on issues from our favorite podcast shows. That's right. We want to introduce our listeners to a few of our very favorite podcasts. And we are fortunate today to have with us the hosts of four podcasts that we like very much. We're going to talk about the Investment News Podcast with Jeff Benjamin, who's a writer at Investment News. We spent a little bit of time with Amber McKinney, who is one of the co-hosts of Law 360's Pro Se Podcast and is a longtime favorite of both Chris's and mine. We sat down with Mandy Moody from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, who is going to talk to us about her long-running show, Fraud Talk. And last but certainly not least, we talk with the host and Stanford Law Professor Andrew Jennings about his podcast, The Business Scholarship Podcast. It's an awesome show. I think you're going to get a really good flavor with some funny clips from each of these shows. And our great hope, like Chris said up top, is that After this episode, you will tune in and listen to some of our friends' podcasts. Enjoy. We're excited to have on the podcast today one of the co-hosts of the Investment News Podcast. 
The Investment News Podcast is where Bruce Kelly and Jeff Benjamin, two finance industry vets, bring insights and experience on all things wealth management. They don't pull punches and they don't always agree. It's actually one of my favorite podcasts. It's uh, a little bit of a newer podcast. And I'm excited to have Jeff on the show today to talk to us about the Investment News Podcast. So let's jump right in, Jeff. So talk to us a little bit about the Investment News Podcast. You know, what, what type of topics do you, do you cover? How did you get started? You know, give us the rundown. Sure. This is something that Bruce and I have been talking about for a long time. Uh, we had a little bit of a change in uh, management at the top here at Investment News about a year ago, and they were the new management, new bosses, editors were more open to, to this sort of thing. Uh, in the past, it seemed like there was hurdles to be overcome, but part of it, like a lot of things and a lot of us in 2020, we learned that you can do what you want to do. Uh, you per- persevere and, uh, and remote doesn't have to be a hurdle. Mm-hmm. So um, we put it together, Bruce and I, we, we talk about topics relevant to our audience, mostly financial intermediaries, advisors and brokers. Uh, we originally set this up as a kind of a these are the things you should be reading about in investment news and across financial services. And we kind of morphed into a platform where we, where we take a topic or two each week and interview somebody. We, we try and get, uh, you know, people that are relevant, newsworthy. We, mm-hmm. we try and pick people. People are, seem to be receptive to being on podcasts. Most people have some kind of experience if they've been in financial services. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, it is a lot of fun. Like you said, we don't, Bruce and I, we don't always agree. We're different in a lot of ways. Um, he calls me a country mouse. Um, he's uh, Bruce Kelly. Hey, how you doing? You know, so, uh, you know, and, but we have a lot of fun, a lot of good laughs. And uh, I, you know, we're trying to be competitive in a very, very competitive, crowded space. As you know, mm-hmm. podcasts are, are everywhere. That's right. Yeah, they certainly are. I mean, you know, one of the things, maybe we can sympathize a little bit on the last point. I mean, we are, Chris, this is episode 28 for us. Is that right? That's right. And uh, I think in the Investment News podcast is also right around 30, something like that. Now, you guys do it every week. We go every other. But, you know, it's a little bit hard to tell how you're, how you're doing when you're mm-hmm. sort of a younger podcast. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Jeff, what do you think? How's it, how's it going? Any successes or uh, anything you've learned that you want to share? Yeah, well, some of the things we've learned, like I said, we started out with, uh, we had kind of five, four or five segments that we would touch on. And it would just be Bruce mm-hmm. and I talking about, here's what we covered today, this week. And these are some of the things we saw. And we'd throw our own little comments in there. And then we even had one at the end was called the open notebook segment, where we would mm-hmm. uh, kind of pick apart something that maybe got under our skin or mm-hmm. didn't make the, the news pages or something like that. You know, maybe we would criticize public relations people or something like that. Fun, <laughs> easy targets, um, yeah. right? Easy targets. Um, but we did. We started bringing on guests. We realized it was it was easier than we thought it was going to be. We even got one sponsored uh, interview, which was our first little win on the you know getting mm-hmm. some revenue behind That's it. Great, cool. Um, but you know, you go for you go for hot topics and high profile people. Josh Brown's a good example. He wrote a book. Or he he helped, I guess, bring together a, a collection of essays mm-hmm. um, from financial professionals. I read the book and reviewed it, wrote about it, and then we decided to have him on to um, talk about his kind of experience and the origins of the book. And you know, but yeah, it's 
we're trying to get big people on there and uh, trying to get them to tell us things that uh, they're not telling anybody else, if that's yeah. possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we actually, it's a perfect segue. We want to give our listeners a little bit of the flavor of the Investment News Podcast. And I'm glad that you mentioned Josh Brown, sometimes known as the Reformed Broker, because that's a clip that we want to play for our listeners today. So you had Josh on the show back in October. As you mentioned, he was telling you a little bit about his book called How I Invest My Money. And he tends to put the emphasis on my money, because um, it really is what he does with his money. And, and folks who wrote essays for him tell readers wh what they do with their money or how they think about investing their their own money. But it wasn't all about the book. There was actually a pretty, a pretty funny spot in there where you guys were talking a little bit about uh, social media and how Josh is exploring uh, some, some new media. <laughs> I don't know if you want to tee it up a little bit more than that, Jeff, where we can get right to the clip. You know, he's apparently having fun on TikTok, which I thought was right. for teenagers. But um, Josh is very uh, flexible, apparently. Yeah. So this is our conversation about him finding a new home in social media, apparently, at least for now. That's perfect. All right, let's go to the clip. You are on other platforms, though, right? I think you told me this once before. You're, you're, you are you're should see what's going on on TikTok right now. Yeah. I'm getting lit the f up right now. I swear, I'm not even making a joke. My handle is at Downtown J Brown. All right, I will have to. On, uh, and I'm getting, I'm getting killed. I'm getting OK boomered into the Stone Age right oh, now. Oh man! So, <laughs> but so that's a thing that's going you're also, on. Also, you're, you're on Facebook, right? And obviously LinkedIn, right? The big thing I've been working on is YouTube. And actually, two days ago, we broke fifty thousand subscribers, which. There, I don't think there is a financial advisor who's anywhere even near that. The only one I could think of was Jeff Rose, but then he's like out of the business now, I think. I think he's like a motivational speaker now. I was looking like Merrill Lynch has like 5,000 subscribers. Like Fidelity <laughs> has like 7,000. Right. Wow. So we're in the process of building this thing out on YouTube and the clients, clients don't really... We write these like thousand word blog posts five days a week and the clients really don't want to sit and read all our shit every day, but they really do want to hear what the firm is thinking about every topic. So video has become a really great way that our advisors can just blast these YouTube clips to the clients. And then we're building a young audience. Like the average YouTube follower is half the age of the average person that's following us on Facebook. So 50,000 subs is amazing. Our typical video is like 15, 20,000 views. We've done a few that have gone stratospheric and we're having a lot of fun Like because nobody gets to tell us how long or how short. Nobody tells us what we can't say. So we're having a lot of fun building that out and we're working hard on it and it's paying off. How much work is that? I mean, it takes all these things take time and resources, whether you're writing a blog or, well, tweeting doesn't take a lot of time, sometimes not even a lot of thought. Not anymore, it doesn't, Jeff. Right, but how much, I mean, there, there must be some some editing involved and production involved in YouTube videos. Is that? Yeah, I'm not doing any of the hard stuff. The hard stuff, we have employees who work literally at the RIA. Right, I wasn't I wasn't suggesting that you doing were doing all that video editing, editing but you you have to produce the content and that's not always, you know, so, so is that no, taking, that ain't I mean, easy. That is ain't that easy. something that other advisors who would be listening to this could could undertake without having the resources of Ritholtz? Could a could a smaller firm do something like that? Have a footprint on on YouTube? You think? 
Yeah, and I'm sh- I'm sure there are other advisors who are who are doing video well. I just haven't heard of them, but that doesn't for a while nobody would have heard of me because we were we were tiny for a long time and then it just really started blowing up in the last 6 months. So there are probably other people doing this successfully. I don't think you have to like stop everything and focus solely on YouTube. I think we try to stay within our core competence and talk about things we know about. We're doing videos that like if you actually pay attention, it's like Batnick, me, Ben Carlson, Barry jumps on, Blair jumps on. A lot of what we're talking about is what we just wrote about. Like, hey, Ben, tell us about the blog post that you did or whatever. So it's not like we have to sit and do all this research. We've already done that work. And then where did the blog post idea come from? Well, if you read our stuff, a lot of it comes from client questions. Read Ben Carlson, like look at the last 20 posts he's done. And you can, the fingerprints on those post titles are like, these are all questions that our advisors are getting from clients. What happens going into an election? What happens after an election? What about if interest rates start to rise again after they've been depressed for so long? When will inflation come back? We do these very in-depth, heavily researched blog posts as a function of what people are actually asking us. And then the videos become just another way to deliver that same content maybe to a more casual audience. Because let's be honest, most American adults are not sitting around reading financial blog posts. And that's essentially what Bruce and I are doing with this podcast. We, we're basically talking about the stuff that we've already been working on and have written about. We don't really want our bosses to know that because we want them to think we've got, we're doing two different, two completely separate jobs. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're getting two bites of the same apple. Yeah. Well, really, we're just, we're just telling people what they didn't read yet. So I, I love that. I think it's I think it's absolutely great. And uh, Jeff, if your bosses didn't hear it the first time, I guess they, they'll get another <laughs> bite at the end right here. Oh, uh, they but, heard it. Believe me, they 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 called me out. <laughs> uh, you know, full disclosure, um, we've had to go back and put in a couple beeps there because I think I think the language is a little bit looser over at the Investment News Podcast than what we typically do here on, well, on insecurities. That let me tell you about that. On that note, we had uh, we had to kick it around a little bit. That was a little saltier than we uh, had been prepared for. But it was Josh Brown, and and right. you know his language is his language. Uh, they did leave it in, and um, you know that was our I guess our first uh, of that sort of language on our podcast. I don't think that's a that's going to be a, a regular <laughs> occurrence. Hopefully, of course, uh, it's a great clip. Look, we we love the show. I think it's a good introduction. I hope other people will tune in. Um, you know, look, I love this one in particular because I know Chris and I are always thinking about how we can use new or different media. Uh, you know, to sort of get our message out there and to to help people find out about what's going on in the securities regulatory and enforcement space. So, Chris, any closing thoughts on investment news? I think I'm going to pull back on us starting the insecurities uh, TikTok account because it doesn't sound like it's a lot of fun over there. <laughs> no, but no, uh, Jeff, go ahead and, and tell listeners where they might be able to find uh, episodes of Investment News. Yeah, sh- sure. Um, investmentnews.com, of course, mm-hmm. uh, under podcasts on the top tab. Where you can also be found at Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. And just like you guys, we're looking for people, we're looking for listeners, and we're looking for reviews. I mean, give us some feedback. Tell us some things that you want us to talk about. Uh, that's what podcasters kind of live off. You got it. That's right. Listen, rate, and review. Jeff, 
Awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for carving out some time. Listeners, check out the Investment News Podcast. All right, Chris, I am very excited because we also have with us today Amber McKinney, who is one of the co-hosts at the Law 360 Pro Se podcast. You know, personal note, it is it is truly, truly one of my favorites. It has been it has been part of my weekly listening routine for a couple of years now. For those that don't know, Pro Se is a weekly podcast from Law 360. They bring you quick recaps of both the biggest stories and some of the hidden gems in the world of law. Uh, in each episode, the hosts, Amber, who we'll meet today, Bill Donahue and Alex Lawson, are joined by expert guests who take you inside the newsroom and break down the stories they've been talking about. Yeah, I apologize to our listeners if if they can tell that I'm fanboying out a little bit. But uh, <laughs> Pro Se is definitely one of the the leaders in the legal podcast world. And, and like you, Kurt, I'm, I'm definitely an avid listener. And I think we've shared some tweets uh, with each other about some of the, the topical things they've discussed contemporaneously. So let's get to our special guest. Amber, we'd like to welcome you to Insecurities. Guys, I'm blushing over here. What a really nice introduction. So nice to talk with you. <laughs> yeah, we're super excited to have you. Thanks for carving out the time. It's not a hard sell to say, hey, would you like to come talk about the most fun thing you do at your job? So happy to be here and tell you all about Pro Se. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about the podcast? You know, what what types of things do you cover? How, how did it get started with Law360? And, and then really, you know, how's it going? How do you guys evaluate, you know, how the show has been doing? Yeah. So I think... Um, you set it up really nicely that we've been around for a while now. We actually launched uh, mid-2017, so we're we're very old hat in the world of podcasts at this point. <laughs> we've got about 180 episodes under our belt because we are weekly, so that the numbers mm-hmm. add up really fast. And the origin story is is sort of is sort of an interesting one in that um, Law 360 really prides itself on providing the legal news that professionals need, that law students can read, that anybody who cares about the law can turn to. But we're such a big company. We realize that we write between 1,000 and 1,200 stories every single week. So you could be our biggest fan and miss all kinds of stuff that's so fascinating. (laughs) So in the newsroom, it was the kind of thing where me and my two co-hosts that you mentioned, Bill Donahue and Alex Lawson, as well as a couple of our producers, Steve Trader and Kelly Marcano, were the OG Pro Se crew. And we just sort of got to talking about like how do we we deliver to people the stuff they miss, but not make it feel like homework. Um, we, we didn't want to give another thing that people think, oh, I mean, I'd like to stay on top of this, but geez, I don't want to read anything else. I don't want to listen to somebody drone at me about it. So it was kind of the marriage of, what we would want somebody to tell us. I mean, we we talk like friends at a bar who are talking about their cool jobs because that's basically what we are. I think you guys get the balance really, really right because you're you're 100% correct that you can miss an awful lot of stuff on Law360. I mean, you know, Chris and I both are sort of focused on the securities world and usually uh, in the rare occasion that you talk about the rare exciting case in the security <laughs> space, right? Like I'm usually tweeting about it like, wow, you know, like we made it to the big show, everybody. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting to hear about, um, you know, Supreme Court issues and, uh, you know, immigration issues or other things that I, I probably haven't, you know, clicked over specifically to Immigration Law 360. So I think it's a great a balance and you guys are doing an excellent job of bringing some content that maybe is outside of, of folks' comfort zone. Yeah, our idea was basically, you know, the, the kind of experts that subscribe to Law360 really know their own areas really well and our newsletters can deliver what they need that's very specific for them. 
but you still want to be able to be, uh, you know, at the water cooler back when we were in offices or now on the Zoom happy hour and still be able to talk to (laughs) colleagues in a different department. I mean, there's sort of big things that it's just nice for all of us to keep tabs on in the legal world. I got a little misty eyed when you referenced uh, talking to friends at a bar. Uh, it seems like it's been so long, know, <laughs> so long that we've know. been able to do that. And thankfully, you know, Pro Se and other podcasts are here to to kind of fill that gap for us. Yeah, Absolutely. a little behind the curtain that I think I've maybe said on on Pro Se a few times, but I record out of my closet in my apartment now. Um, so yeah, we're all making it work. Uh, yeah, as you do. Well, one of my favorite things that you do uh, on on most shows, I think, is what you call the offbeat segment, which is usually a funny story or something just really off the wall that uh, someone has brought to your attention that happened in the legal world. Sometimes it's a it's a judge uh, decorating his office, um, which I think actually happened back in West Virginia. As it I did. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. That's right. <laughs> uh, or, or just you know, lawyers behaving badly. It's a really entertaining way to end most of your shows. And today, what we want to do, because we're trying to give everybody a little bit of sense of of what the podcasts sound like that we're featuring on this episode, we want to play an offbeat segment from episode 174. Man, I can't even imagine getting there, Chris, but episode 174. <laughs> I think you're going to be around me for that which, long. Yeah. <laughs> which was back in October, uh, on October 30, 2020. Uh, the episode was called Supreme Court Packing Explained, but this offbeat segment is about a big law attorney who went on a bank robbery spree. But Amber, why don't you tee it up for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't want anybody who hasn't heard per se to think that it's it's all just fun and games. Um, <laughs> we do cover some important stuff too. But yeah, we love to leave people at the end of the show with a nugget of just pure fun and ridiculousness. Because as attorneys, I think we've all seen you know, lawsuits that uh, show up on on Twitter or, or just come across your desk for some reason. And you think this is wild. And that's kind of what we talk about in the softbeat segment. So I don't think I have to give too much away other than what you said. <laughs> it is about a big law attorney who made some pretty bad decisions. All right, let's cue it up. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And guys, one bucket we often have for these stories is when an attorney becomes a lawbreaker. And I've got one in that vein to talk about today. That's that's chief among my favorite uh, of the stories. We yeah, do. this one's actually kind of intense. Um, it's an <laughs> <Great>. ex. <laughs> it's an it's an ex big law attorney who's been charged with a bank robbery spree in South Florida. You you I I I love it because. For the last six months, we've all just kind of looked like bank robbers. Uh, you know, we look like old west, like it's we're true. we're we're holding up a saloon in the old west. This has some, you know, I'll I'll, I'll give you some details about what this, this fella did. Uh, it does have some classic bank robber stuff in it. So his okay. name is Aaron Honecker. He's forty one, and he was arrested Tuesday night. He's charged with robbing two banks for a total of only eighteen hundred dollars. And also attempting to rob four more all within recent weeks. So it really Aaron, was a spree. You got to do better, bud. Like you could, you could bill that much in in like yeah. an hour if you just got promoted a couple times. I like, was surprised by the dollar figure. I, I mean, I guess it's hard to rob banks. I've never really thought about this, but I just have the movie conception of like you're going to get a lot more than eighteen hundred dollars. But it's hard, I think. Um, so here's what he did. I mean, you got to case the joint. You got to. I mean, all the all the good ones. You got to do your research. You got to know when it's coming in and out. You got to know which tellers are vulnerable. Where the die pack is. You know. I mean, we 
sounds know like, how this goes. Sounds like you're ready to rob a bank. Well, here's what Alex, just, Alex has said. watched Heat. Alex has watched Heat many times. So uh, <laughs> I'm I'm going in reverse. I've had my brush with petty theft, and I will become a lawyer next year. That's what I'm going to do. I'm oh, going like to go. It. That's I call that order. the reverse. I call that the reverse Hanukkah. Uh, no, but uh, what else okay. do we know? Yeah. So he entered each bank alone. He went up to the teller and asked for help making a withdrawal, which that's what he wanted. And then he would pass them a handwritten that's, that's, note. That's one way to put it, I suppose. <laughs> that's yeah. right. He'd okay. pass them a handwritten note that had instructions and warnings on it. So they said things like, don't touch the alarm or call the police. Empty all your 50s and 100s and put them in this envelope. Uh, keep calm. Give me all the money in your drawer. I've got a gun. Like, What if he was just gun? being, uh, see, the gun is where it gets you. All that's, that earlier that's stuff you said could have just been like a really embellished way of him asking for his money out of his account. That's put all the 50s in a bag the, the legally. There's nothing, re- there's nothing really wrong with just telling someone not to call the police. Like in a vacuum, you right, can right. say, I, hey, by the way, Amber, don't call the police. Sure. Right. It's, it's Lock you know, yeah. maybe you're maybe you're reading more into it than I'm saying, but I'm just saying yeah. don't call the police. D- don't call the police. Certainly don't touch the alarm. Well, so here's what <laughs> happened when he comes in with those notes. Twice okay. this worked. Um, okay. That the tellers gave him various sums of money. One was a little over a thousand dollars. One was eight hundred dollars. There were three other instances where he went in, handed off the note, and for various reasons the crime fell apart and the teller didn't do what he wanted. And oh so boy. he just left. He just left those banks. He gave it a shot. It didn't work. He left. Um, on his sixth attempt in the Coral Gables, Florida area, a detective saw him like walking around outside of a bank there. At this point, he, um, a suspect description was out to all law enforcement about these previous robberies. The detective thought it was probably their guy, approached him, and he was taken into custody as he was about to enter that bank. And he had some some evidence on him at the time. They found him with a hammer, the demand notes. Oh, and like also... I can't have a hammer. Oh, and the demand note. Oh, <laughs> well, okay, he also sorry. Had and then he also had this, which is my favorite part of the story. He had on, his, on him when they arrested him, instructions on how to commit bank robberies love it i absolutely love it yeah. i've been trying to i've been trying to make a couple excuses for this guy and he just keeps nope. running into the wall nope. i mean there's no way Look, there's really gotta around that. That. you gotta lawyers, do better lawyers are taught during their whole schooling yeah. and also during their careers research is key and important to win anything you're doing he did his research he had instructions on how to commit bank robberies um, well, so can we... yeah, so he actually confessed. By the way, I should say okay. that too. He did confess once he was in custody. Um, I I just I feel like maybe we should end this. That's kind of the outline of what he did. Mm-hmm. I think it's so weird when attorneys take this sharp turn into illegality. So let me give you a few details about this guy. I'll say, yeah, what do we have any sense of what what led him? But I mean, yeah, let's talk about his bio yeah, a little it's, bit. It's then, hard yeah. to tell what went wrong in his life that led to this point. But there's a few. We are not FBI criminal profilers. I don't want to go down that yeah. road. But yeah. um, he was a bankruptcy attorney before this. So again, okay. dealing with numbers. Uh, he was admitted to the Florida bar in 2008, and his online bar profile says he's in good standing. He's never had any disciplinary problems or anything else at the bar. <laughs> no, previous, no previous bank robberies on his it, bar uh, It just makes role. it seem so surprising, though, that you've never gotten in trouble, and then you're a bank robber. Um, he, I said up top he was a former big law 
um, attorney. He worked at Greenberg Traurig from 2008 to 2011. So it's, you a, know, it's a place you know everybody the, knows. You know the Greenberg Traurig people are like, yes, glad they named us. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness, he hasn't worked there since 2011. He went on to work at some Miami area firms, a few of them. The most recent one it has a little bit of a mysterious note to it. Um, when his most recent firm was contacted about this story, they told local reporters that two years ago he left the firm, quote, suddenly, and no one's heard from him since. It's almost like he's on the lam. Almost. I mean, he- I read that they went into his office and found some ba- some bags with a dollar sign on it. <laughs> yeah. it was a big tell. Uh, also, a black bandana with eye holes in it. Very strange stuff. Just I don't telltale know. stuff right there, along with the instructions about how to rob yeah, a bank. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the sort of strange tale of of this gentleman. He is currently in the legal process, but it's early days, so we'll have to wait to see what happens. But like I said, he did confess to this, so it'll probably be quick, quick, pretty quick moving um, to get him to the next stages. We're always right. trying to bring you young lawyers, just actionable, you know, tips about your career. Definitely don't rob banks. I, I you know, it's just <laughs> it's a it's 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 not the best move. If you take nothing else away from this podcast, that's great advice. Um, or use a partner, a lookout. This sounds like he was flying okay, solo. Let's uh, stick with all right, Bill's oh, advice. All right, okay, none of Alex's advice. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, being with me on today's show, guys. Thanks a lot, Alex. All right. Bye. And Bill. See you again next week. If nothing else, guys, I think that'll give you a good flavor of the dynamics of the group, where um, they are both very funny i love it and the thing this happens all the time actually but they like cue in on the things that are catching my attention i'm like eighteen hundred dollars and like why did he have a hammer (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean right there to the 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 things that matter most right exactly it's hard hitting stuff i love that segment thank you for sharing it with us um please uh tell bill and alex thank you um for letting us feature them on the show as well i don't know chris any last reactions while we have Amber, any more fanboy stuff? Yeah, I think just one other thing to note, and, and Amber, you touched on this earlier, is that you guys cover a lot. Again, that was the end of an episode titled Supreme Court Packing Explained. <laughs> so that kind of gives you the range of things that are covered. Again, in late October, right, is when that episode uh, went live. So that pre-election, you know, hard-hitting factual stuff. I mean, I think you're exactly right. We have a range. So the rest of the show, a uh, lot more straight man stuff um mm-hmm. but we like to leave you with the, the sweet dessert at the end <laughs> um, that's great so i'm guessing that most of the folks that listen to our podcast also listen to to pro se and this was really just a treat for us but in case there are any folks out there who haven't turned in uh, amber where can they find your podcast we're really easy to find, guys. Any platform where you already listen to podcasts, just search for Law 360. The name of the show is a pun, so it's P-R-O-S-A-Y. Um, but we can also be found on our own website. It's just law360.com slash podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We really do appreciate it. Uh, and, and we'll be tuning into your podcast in the weeks to come. Appreciate it, guys. It was a great chat. Well, Kurt, to reference another podcast that I know I'm a huge fan of and I've gotten you to turn on a couple times as well is the Fraud Talk podcast from the the ACFE. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know the ACFE is the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. They are the world's largest anti-fraud organization and a premier provider of anti-fraud training and education. 
with more than 85,000 members globally. Full disclosure, I am one of those members. <laughs> fraud, fraud Talk provides candid conversations with certified fraud examiners, law enforcement officials, and other anti-fraud professionals about current trends, past headline cases, and practice management considerations for fraud investigators. Fraud Talk has published more than 100 episodes, Kurt, so that means they're probably about four times better than us, uh, <laughs> since it began in 2012, and also has the infamous designation of my personal first podcast experience as an interviewee. Uh, so you partly have them to blame for doing this podcast with me, Kurt. Yeah, I love it. No, you, you've turned me on to Fraud Talk. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, believe it or not, I was not plugged into the ACFE before we started talking to each other all the time. Uh, and so uh, I'm excited that we have today one of the the founders of the podcast and uh, frequent host, Mandy Moody. Mandy, welcome to Insecurities. Thanks for being with us. Hello. I'm excited to be here. I am actually even more excited because uh, you both know what fraud talk is. So <laughs> that uh, I, I go to all of my family gatherings and try and tell them what a podcast is and what I do. And, you know, they have no idea. So I'm excited to be in, in good company. Let's, let's just kick it off with some of the basics. I mean, tell us a little bit about Fraud Talk for those who haven't tuned in. What do you cover? And I mean, your, your podcast is a little older than ours, but you know, think back. How did it start? What really got you into it? Let's see. I joined the ACFE in 2010 and I you know, got my feet wet for a little bit and then I quickly wanted to start a bunch of different things in our communications department. So a podcast was one of those. I was actually reminiscing uh, yesterday and today about how we got started with it. And I I vividly remember I used to listen to This American Life constantly. <laughs> and this was before I had children, so I actually had time to listen to This American Life. <laughs> oh, the good old um, And I remember just loving it. And so I knew our members... Uh, our, you know, our fraud fighting members loved case studies and they wanted to hear about things that were going on. So I was like, I'm going to do a fraud version of This American Life and mm -hmm. I'm going to make it so interesting. Getting right into case studies. We talked to experts about trends that they're seeing. We talked to people about the latest fraud news. So we just did something on Wirecard. I remember the whole uh, Rita Crunwell case, the uh, woman who embezzled from this tiny, tiny little town in Dixon, Illinois. And of course, we went into that. We've had some of our fraudsters, people who've committed fraud come on. So my goal has always been, and what I tell people who do interviews now is you have to give something that people can't read in an article or Google yeah. themselves. So we try to like dig even deeper and talk about things that you know you might not see in uh, in the news. Yeah, it's it's a really great story and a couple things in there. Although again, we're we're not nearly as as long in the tooth as your podcast, but you know it's been a learning experience for us too about getting the right balance between us talking and guests talking, and being flexible and sort of a, adapting your style or the way that the episodes are presented or sound. Uh, sounds like it's sort of a continuing evolution, which really, you know, makes me wonder, like, how's it going? Are there any particular successes that you'd like to share? Uh, any metrics that you think are awesome since you're a little bit farther down the road than us? When we started, I, I, we really didn't know what we were doing, right? I mean, we, we just wanted to hop on a podcast train. Um, and 
try and and give people content in a different way than what they we had just been produ- you know writing articles. Um, we have a magazine that we put out every other month. And so that was like our main way of getting across people. I mean, we barely even had social media at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, So for us, we really didn't know what to do. We were just putting it out. And then I went to a conference in Cleveland. It's a content marketing, you know, it's for a bunch of dorks who like content. And they, somebody said, you know, a successful podcast has about two to 300 downloads a month. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I came back. I was like, we're successful. Like, th- <laughs> we have that. Like, that's, we do that. Like, we, we have at least 200, you know, um, even if it's some of our employees, like, we still have at least 200. <laughs> yeah, we know all about padding the stat, Mandy. And one of the things I love about Fraud Talk, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Mandy, is not only is it just discussing the areas in which fraud cases occur or potential issues, you get the folks on that did the thing, right? Yeah. The recovering fraudsters, if you will. And the ACFE does a great job of this, you know, globally, right? With all their programming is getting the folks to to tell the story from the inside. And actually we wanted to share today a clip, uh, not of someone who who committed the fraud, but actually a, an individual who suffered at the hands of a fraudster. And, and that really came to a very interesting episode we're going to share a clip with. But uh, the woman's name is Lisa Lawler, and she's actually was married to an individual who conducted their own fraud scheme. Right, Mandy? Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa, this was fascinating. And we actually had lunch with her. So she lives in Austin, which is where we're based. And we took her out for lunch and kind of got to know her a little bit in her story and then did the podcast afterwards. And so Lisa's husband was convicted of embezzling $2 million from his job. He was an administrator at a hospital. And she had no idea, no clue. And so she kind of flipped that and turned it on its head and started something called the White Collar Wives Club. And she has a blog and a community who she helps. And for me, it was eye-opening because I'm sure many of your listeners and and you both followed the Madoff case. And Mm -hmm. I watched so many interviews with Ruth Madoff. And I just couldn't grasp that she didn't know or the sons or something, you know, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And then meeting Lisa, I, I, I got the other side of the story. And, uh, and that's, that's what was so interesting about it is, is I kind of got to meet and see what it looks like uh, from a spouse. And, And that was just fascinating. And with that, we're going to take a listen to a segment of that episode. How is this important to fraud examiners? I think there's several really important points for things that fraud examiners need to know about. Uh, so you have your suspect and you track them through this case, but then how does it affect people who are involved with this? So give me your short rendition of what your story is. Well, John, I want to thank you for having me here with the ACFE. It's really important what you do, what you guys do. You've got a big job. Um, I am the founder director of the White Collar Wives Project. We began about four years ago. Uh, I started blogging in 2013, a few years after my husband embezzled and was prosecuted for a $2.6 million embezzlement from a prominent teaching hospital where he was an administrator. So that was a, a shock for me, for everyone. 
And what people don't understand is there are repercussions to the family. We talk about white-collar crime being a victimless crime because mostly it's in the corporate setting, but not always. But there are other victims that the public doesn't consider, and that is the family members of the perp. Uh, There are repercussions that one might not think about, aside from the fact that how didn't she know that that was happening? We'll get into that a little bit later. But there are tax implications. There is civil asset seizure and forfeiture that too often comes into play. And the innocent spouses are helpless to confront that or to mitigate that. You know, civil asset seizure and forfeiture came along as a means through mostly, you know, mob street crimes, uh, drug-related crimes, and it transferred over to white-collar crimes somewhere along the way. And so those repercussions are very difficult. Oftentimes, women have to hire their own attorneys into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And when your bank accounts are frozen, that becomes very difficult to find representation. So I began blogging about all of these things, and then I began to hear from women. And I began a support group, a private online support group, because mostly these women come in shamed and afraid and not understanding what's happened in their lives. You know, they're dealing with their children. They're also dealing with trying to wrap their heads around the fact that their husband is a criminal. You know, the man that was living, sleeping, eating, drinking right next to them, father of their children is a common criminal. So as I heard from these women uh, and heard their stories, they become, well, actually, the picture becomes clearer as to the fact that I got off easy compared to what some of these women have been through. So our support group started with just a handful of women, and now we're nearing a uh, hundred members across the globe. It, it it's just incredible to to think that you. I mean, people always say, "Well, how could you not know?" And I see that all all the time, and, and so many of the the cases that, that I've uh, met with people about, and and so they're always like, "Well, you know, the spouse." claims to be innocent, but how could they not know what was going on? So tell me, you know, you're, how do you deal with that when people start asking you those questions? You know, it's one of the lead things that I talk about when I meet women. Um, they feel the guilt by association. How can you not? It's somehow we feel responsible for our husbands, and we're, and we're not responsible for them. But in terms of how could she not know, how could we not know, you know, every situation is different, but we're talking about master manipulators. We're talking about how could his employer not know? How could, you know, how could a wife not know? For the most part, these funds are hidden away, and they're either brought into to being slowly, and they're often explained away as a new client or some kind of other windfall. In my case, my husband had opened up a separate bank account because he had other plans for his funds uh, that didn't include me. So no, I I had no idea. Uh, But the stories about each case are fascinating because it's how they hide this money, when they bring it in, how they choose to tell their wives where it came from. And often on tax forms, you know, joint tax forms, the wives uh, are, are not made aware there either, if they even bother to look at what they're signing. Unfortunately, a lot of women don't. Um, a lot of spouses don't. They trust their husband implicitly, and they say, sign here, and you do, because those funds are omitted from their tax uh, returns as income. Such an interesting perspective into uh, you know what what types of things fraud causes for those outside of just, you know, a, um, you know, the loss of funds, right? I think uh, later in the interview, Lisa talks about how they 
they say that white collar crime is a victimless crime, but that does not take into account the spouse and, and the children. Mandy, that was a great conversation. It was eye opening for me because as someone who writes about it a lot and and works mainly with fraud examiners or attorneys or people on the other side, you just assume that, oh, they had to have known um, or they had to have had some suspicion. But it, like she said in that clip, which I think is so important, is, well, how did the employer not know? Mm-hmm. You know, you're asking me how I didn't know, but how did you not know that someone was taking money right from your accounts? You know, and, and she's got a good point that a lot of these fraudsters or Madoff type, or, you know, they are master manipulators. And so the the wife and the children and the family, and oftentimes we've interviewed fraudsters. We interviewed one guy who stole from his family. You know, he did a Ponzi scheme and took from his grandmother. So it, it kind of knows no limits at that point. Um, but she she just really opened my eyes to it. And, you know, we do this report to the nations every two years and we list some of the red flags of fraud of uh, an individual, what a fraudster could look like. And it's funny because the same things that you would be on the lookout for, you know, major lifestyle changes or wheeler dealer attitude or keeping things close, close to you, not sharing what you're working on, are all things that I would imagine an employer would see or coworkers and a spouse. And you don't ever think as a, as a wife that you have to look for red flags of fraud, you know, and your husband, but, but those red flags were there as well. Yeah. It's it's absolutely fascinating. I love this story. I haven't heard it anywhere else, at least not, not like that. Uh, So kudos to you and the team for picking up on that thread. I think it's great. I mean, look, somebody has got to call Andy Cohen. This is obviously a new series that's going to be coming out. I I mean, how, how is it not? I know. Well, she said, Lisa said she's, someone offered her a deal. I think it was a series. And and she turned it down. She said she's looking for the right fit. So yeah, Bravo celebrity status is not for everyone. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's it's a lot. It's something to shoot for, though. I think for the Insecurities podcast. And what stuck with me on that too is is how Lisa took the the tragedy and turned it into something. You know, a discussion place, a, a way to to build community with with other folks who've suffered the same way. So we always look for those kind of silver linings in in issues like this, but. Uh, Mandy, I know there's, like we said, many, many more episodes of Fraud Talk. And, and if our listeners are interested, you know, where where can you direct them to, to download and listen? So you can find us on anywhere you listen to podcasts. So Spotify, Google Play, Apple, iTunes, and anywhere you can uh, search for a podcast, that's where we are. You can also go old school and go to our website at acfe.com slash podcast, which is awesome. where I send my parents. Yeah, I love it. Those those downloads count too. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, we do not discriminate against where you listen from. Well, thanks for joining us today on Insecurities and, and sharing the stories of Fraud Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kurt, I know another podcast that you and I listen to religiously uh, as co-hosts of the Insecurities podcast uh, comes from our friends over on the West Coast, the Business Scholarship Podcast. Features weekly conversations about all of our favorite things. Law, finance, the big one, accounting. We can agree to disagree on that. And features other scholars uh, around new works in the broad world of business research. 
We're grateful to have its host, Andrew Jennings, a lecturer in law and a teaching fellow at the Stanford Law School here with us today. And we're excited to have Andrew. Uh, Andrew and I know each other a little bit. We've been chasing each other around Twitter for <laughs> probably a year now. And then over the summer, I actually was fortunate to participate in a corporate and securities litigation workshop uh, where some scholars met from time to time throughout the summer to present papers. Uh, Andrew presented his new paper on state securities enforcement, which uh, was was very insightful, very good. And, and we have chatted about it a little bit since. So, Andrew, we're really happy to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for making some time. Well, thank you, Kurt and Chris. It's great to be on the show. And I'm an avid listener of Insecurities podcast as well. So we've got a mutual admiration society here here to to (laughs) go forward. (laughs) Uh, High tide raises all boats, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, talk to us a little bit, uh, Andrew, about the Business Scholarship Podcast. You know, what are the, the general covering topics, you know, some recent episodes you may have really enjoyed? And also, you know, why'd you get started? How'd you get involved in podcasting? Sure. So, Chris, you gave a little bit of a a callback to the tagline of the podcast, which is conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. And as you mentioned, I interview mainly legal academics uh, in business and corporate fields broadly considered. So that might include everything from M&A to antitrust to law and economics to securities. Uh, But I also talk to accounting, finance, uh, academics in other fields, as well as practitioners and other experts who have something to say about business research, again, broadly considered. My goal for each episode is to interview an author or multiple authors uh, about a recent academic piece that they've done. And really, the the goal is to capture the key points of those works uh, for experts in the field who may be listening, but also to make it accessible for others who might be interested, perhaps people who aren't in the field, perhaps people who aren't academics, uh, but are just interested and they've got some time to kill while they're driving or they're out for a jog or they're doing some chores around the house. Uh, or they're trying to avoid next Zoom call, that sort of thing. So that's kind of the goal to, to speak to both uh, that's the experts. the secret to avoid those Zoom calls. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the podcast is, is that. So in terms of the origin story, you know, I've been an avid listener of a, a very early podcast called Econ Talk probably for over a decade now. Uh, It's hosted by Russ Roberts. He's a professor at George Mason, and uh, he's uh, affiliated with the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And he has a very similar format that I do. I, I really copied my format in large part from him, which is to interview somebody about a a work of of academic economics or other fields that are relevant or interesting to Russ. So I thought for a few years, you know, wouldn't it be neat to do something like that for law? Uh, And around the time that I was thinking about starting a podcast like Econ Talk, but for law, uh, perhaps it could have been called Law Talk. I don't know if that name has been taken. I discovered that there was a a pretty new podcast called Ipsa Dixit, uh, hosted by Brian Fry, a professor at the University of Kentucky, that was just that. And, and talking to Brian, it, I think it turns out that Econ Talk was a little bit of an inspiration for his podcast as well. So Econ Talk was really, I think, a pod that maybe spurred um, at least our two podcasts and probably others. So, you know, Brian had kind of the general legal scholarship uh, podcast kind of uh, format. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do something a little bit different. I'll do something a little bit more niche. My area is business and corporate. So I'll do something kind of in that area. And that was the genesis of the business scholarship podcast. 
It's so funny. You know, we've talked to a few folks about their podcasts and there seems to be this running theme that you have to be able to adapt and be flexible in your approach and, and sort of the shape of your podcast. And so I just love hearing about how people have, you know, th they sort of learn as they go a little bit, but also look out in the market and see what's there. How can I differentiate myself from other folks who are talking about some of the same things? So I, I really, I like hearing those stories. I think it's, it's fascinating. I, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit still for – there's really been a blossoming of podcasts and everybody seems to have one these days. But I think there's still so much low-hanging fruit for for topics or different twists uh, to take. And seeing legal academics uh, start with podcasts, uh, especially the last two years or so, it's been really interesting how everybody has uh, something really interesting to say uh, in an area. And there's, I think, more content or potential content out there than than could ever be covered. So I think that there's still uh, very much uh, a market out there for new, uh, new podcasts. If you could, Andrew, talk to us a little bit about how you measure success. Is it interesting topics or hearing from some of your colleagues about the quality of an episode or do you track downloads or subscribers? Yeah, so I think there are hard and soft ways to track success. So the, the podcast started in July 2019. Uh, I've had 80 episodes thus far and 84 guests. Uh, some guests have come on a couple times. We've done an annual symposium uh, episode, which was last year, uh, looking at the 10th anniversary of Citizens United. We've got one coming up uh, that Kurt will be a part of, actually, uh, focused on looking at the next four years of corporate and financial regulation and the Biden administration that'll be out in early 2021. You know, listenership has been trending up. We're about around probably about 200 listens per episode now, uh, which I think for a niche podcast, I'm, I'm really thrilled by. And there's also a mix of academics, uh, practitioners, lay people, uh, some regulators, students, etc. So it's a good mix of listeners. So I think that's kind of the hard uh, data in terms of success, and it's kind of inching up. I think some of the soft measures are when I invite somebody to come on the show and I get a reply, I love the show, I'd be happy to be on the show. So I think that that's a, a really nice bit of feedback or getting feedback from people who've listened to an episode and said, thanks so much for highlighting that paper. It was just what I was looking for, for the paper I'm working on. I, I wouldn't have maybe seen it otherwise, but this is going to going to be really useful for me in my research. Uh, one one guest, I, I think it was such a nice compliment uh, that I received uh, after listening to this episode said, you know, thank you for making me sound smart. And I think that if I can make guests happy with how they're presenting their their scholarship and, and getting it across to a new audience. I think that's a really meaningful thing for me. Excellent. Yeah, I think we measure our success in in many of the same ways. I think we're getting around the same number of downloads at the at the moment, but also just you know hearing back from folks. I I love you know Andrew. I distinctly remember in an email over the summer you responded to me and said, "Hey, I love your show," and I just thought, "Oh wow, that's awesome!" You know, I didn't have to sell it to somebody. There are people out there just listening. It feels good, and and we've had the same from some guests who have said, "Man, when I went back and listened to that, like I I really sound like I know my stuff," uh, and and we try to. Get people that do. So yeah, I think we're thinking about it the same way. Uh, I want to give folks a little bit of a sense of how your podcast sounds, how some of the conversations flow. And so what we've done is identified an episode that, or, or a little clip that we think folks will like. Um, on this clip, you are talking with David Hoffman and Kathy Huang, or you're talking about the social cost of contract. Uh, this episode came out in September of this year. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, David Hoffman is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, and Kathy Huang is a 
professor of law at the University of Virginia. And on this episode, they're actually, or at least the clip we're going to listen to, they're telling you about a contract that relates to a baby fair. Is that right? You want to tee it up for us? Sure. So this is a paper that's really focused on how courts are going to deal with the unexpected extreme social externalities that situations like the COVID-19 pandemic present. And so in this clip, Dave and Kathy are discussing a case that arose out of another major pandemic in U.S. history, which was the 1918 flu pandemic and a contract to host something called a baby fair and whether that contract could be enforced, uh, whether it was safe to have a baby fair in 1918. And if you and your listeners are curious about what a baby fair is, uh, Dave and Kathy can explain that in the clip. All right, let's get it started. You discuss a few different ways that public policy and public interest intervene in private contracting. And in the essay, as you note, you focus on enforcement interventions, i.e. what courts will do when they are asked to enforce contracts. Historically, what have courts done in this regard or what have they not done to inject policy or public interest into contract enforcement or to take those considerations into account? So that's a great question. I mean, Usually we think of American courts, right, as really enforcing contracts more or less as they are written with a little bit of fuzziness around the edges about how they interpret them, right? So usually if you and I have a contract and it says you're going to pay me a million dollars and I'm going to provide you with a teacup, usually courts are kind of cool with that. Maybe not this particular example. I think that in the pandemic situation, we basically reached back and read pandemic cases. And there we saw situations where courts really took a half loaf solution, right? So they really said, this pandemic is kind of weird and enforcing the contract exactly as written is going to come up with kind of weird results and incentives that we don't like. Our favorite case in this vein is a case that Dave has talked about quite a lot. It's a case called Hanford, and it's about a baby fair that was supposed to happen in Connecticut. So these folks, essentially, they were going to have a baby fair. I always like to tell people like a baby fair is like a dog show, basically, like you bring babies and we decide if they are cute, I guess. We, we determine which one is the cutest. No, I mean, you just you evaluate the babies on many metrics, not just cutest. It's also best dimple, best eyes, best, best, best disposition hair. and fattest. I thought there was also twins, yeah, twin siblings. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways to judge babies. (laughs) I would say that... We, we'd hope that maybe something like that wouldn't go on today, but if we look at the fair on, on different cable networks, that is very much a uh, practice that we still probably do to a good degree. And these are babies. They don't know, I hope. It's meant to be cute, I think. <laughs> In the baby fair case, for instance, the baby promoter, he basically sued because the baby fair was canceled because of the polio pandemic. So the court basically said he doesn't get any damages, even though the contract would have him get damages because it would have been disastrous to have a baby fair. So it's the right thing to do, essentially. So we see some of that happening already. But as we mentioned in the paper, it's really anti-canon, right? These are weird little cases. Weird, but fun, I would say. I love that, right? I mean, when when we think about uh, you know contract law, it may not be the topic that comes immediately to mind for the for the sexiest of, of legal papers, but that that's a really good clip, and I love this line. Like, there's many ways to judge babies. <laughs> I don't know, Chris, man, how did that hit you? I'm speechless. Just, 
I, I always love the intersection between meaningful and deep research and analysis and wildly off-topic ideas, right? And so I think that, that that's the perfect marriage of the two. But uh, I mean, it's it's very uh, apropos for, for this year as well, as mm-hmm. a lot of folks that I know have been you know, looking into their event cancellation insurance policies. Uh, I believe Wimbledon, uh, the tennis tournament back in the spring, collected on that policy for for similar reasons, albeit not the the cutest dimples on on the main court. But uh, you know, seeing seeing what they could collect on that, and, and knowing that that's now part of our society is an interesting wrinkle there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Andrew, we'd, we've loved having you on the show. Thank you so much for, for making some time. Uh, obviously, I'm looking forward to the symposium that's going to be uh, coming out next month. But uh, Shameless plug. I, did, I didn't plug, plug it. I didn't plug yeah. it. But uh, you know, we hope all of our listeners will tune in too because there are some really, uh, some really great panels. Why don't you, you know, tell our listeners, Andrew, where can they find your podcast? Where can we subscribe? Sure. So uh, as they, they say in the podcast world, it's available on your favorite podcast app, uh, which might be Stitcher or Apple or Google or Spotify or TuneIn or, or something else. Uh, it's also available directly at my academic website, which is andrewkjennings.com slash podcast. Uh, there's also a Twitter account at Bus Scholarship, uh, should stand for business, but at Bus Scholarship, B-U-S Scholarship, where I post links whenever there's a new episode. So you can follow that and, and get that whenever there's a, a new new episode to listen to. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Chris, I loved this episode. It was so much fun talking with some of our favorite hosts from some of our favorite podcasts. Uh, I, I actually hope that this will become something that we do every year, maybe every quarter. I don't know. But I just thought it was an awful lot of fun to get to get the flavor of, of some podcasts that I know you and I listen to all the time. Not only that, Kurt, it was pretty self-affirming to realize that some of the headaches shared by our contemporaries in the podcasting world are, are not unique to, to you and me putting this podcast <laughs> together, uh, as well as seeing the right amount of humor and, and, and levity sprinkled in with some of these more detailed and, and interesting topics from a legal perspective. So uh, definitely a great episode and, and looking forward to, to finding more episodes to showcase here on Insecurities. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Jeff Benjamin of the Investment News Podcast, Amber McKinney of Law360's Pro Se Podcast, Mandy Moody of the ACFE's Fraud Talk Podcast, and Andrew Jennings of the Business Scholarship Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next year. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, 
or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.